0: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. From the
1: newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in Marissa Lang with the Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy, or to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, panel. my
2: name's Jenna Johnson.
1: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, September 18th. Today, an honest conversation about affirmative action and the question of ballot signatures.
2: With all the activity that has been going on in the protests, Black Lives Matter, and our reckoning with race, I thought it was finally time for me to talk about my career and the racism that I've incurred. I'm Michelle Singletary. I'm the personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. When it happens, sometimes it's so subtle that when you talk about it, people dismiss mm-hmm. it. You're being too sensitive. That's not what they meant. That's not what they intended. And so you're very reluctant to talk about the things that happened to you because you don't want to be dismissed. And then you start to think, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I did misinterpret what they said or what they didn't say. You start second guessing yourself. You do. You start second guessing yourself thinking maybe, maybe they did mean well about this or that. But I think now is the time to have these candid conversations about race I mean, there's some people you're just not going to get to, but there is a large swath of folks who maybe don't even know that this is going on or they don't think that they are being racist by their actions. And I just think now is the time to talk about it.
1: Michelle Singletary is a personal finance columnist, and in my mind, she is one of the most cool, confident, together people I know. She has her nationally syndicated column, she's written books, she's been on Oprah and the Today Show. So it really surprised me to hear that she still sometimes feels self-doubt about how she got to where she is now and how people have responded to her path. That's something that she's been reflecting on lately, as she's started a series of columns that are more personal, about misconceptions around race and economic circumstances. The series is called Sincerely, Michelle, and this first story tackles affirmative action. Because when we talk about affirmative action, we often talk about it on a structural level, whether it's necessary, who benefits and who doesn't. But we don't really talk publicly about what it's like to be on the inside of that. How a great opportunity can weigh on your psyche. And that's something that Michelle has a lot of experience with. When she was first hired at the Post from the Baltimore Evening Sun in the 90s, she was 29 years old. And she suddenly had to deal with a very white newsroom and a lot of questions from her new colleagues about how exactly she got there. So then tell me about your experience when you first came to The Post and about some of the things that you
2: recounted in in your column. So initially, you know, I I was so excited. But I noticed that it's right after I got there, there were so many people asking me about my background, but in a way that wasn't sort of like, oh, who are you? How are you? It was like, how did you get here? You know, I got to the Post Mm -hmm. in a relatively short period of time. So people kept asking me, you know, about my background. Where did I go to school? It was so odd. And it's so funny because I'm so Baltimore. So one reporter asked me when I was standing at the elevator, "So Michelle, What school did you go to? Now, in Baltimore, your school is all about where you went to high school. And so I'm thinking he may know that. So I said, oh, I went to Western High School. He just looked at me like I had a third eye. No, I don't mean high school. That's how he said it to me. You know, where did you go to college? And I said, oh, University of Maryland. And and I kid you not, the conversation stopped right there Mm. as if that did what you, a state school. (laughs) And then, you know, people would say things like that. And, and then they would say it to other reporters and who had become friendly with me, they would say, Hey, you know, people are asking about why you got here. And it got back to me that they were talking about, you know, my qualifications and that I was an affirmative action hire and that I was mostly there because I was black And the implication is that I took a job from a more qualified white person. What did you do when you started to hear that? So... Like a lot of people in my position, minorities, I began to question myself. Well, did he hire me because I was black? I did get here pretty fast. And and I didn't, I had never applied to the Post. I'd never even wanted to work for the Post. I was working for my hometown paper. I could go visit my grandmother, you know, constantly. And so I had no desire at that time to move up to the storied Washington Post. And the fact that I hadn't clamored to be there was also perplexing to these people, which to them, the, and, you know, verified their narrative that I was there just because I was Black. And so I just had all this self-doubt and, you know, crying and just like, what in the world? And I had finally had enough. And after a staff meeting, I walked up to David and I said, just right out of the bat, did you hire me because I was Black?
1: Which feels like a very... uh brave and also risky (laughs) move to to go to the person who hired you and and basically like ask them straight up did you hire me because I'm black
2: you know at the time I didn't think of myself as being brave or even candid I guess I just wanted I don't know what I wanted to be honest I didn't know what he was going to say and I don't even know what I would have done if the answer had been a little different um But I just needed to know for myself if I had gotten there simply because I was black, because I would never want a position Hmm. simply because I was black, I want to be treated like everybody else. And I think most minorities and women, I, I would venture to say that the vast majority, if not all, would not want to take a job that they're not qualified for. You know, because that just sets you up for failure. Why would you want to do that? And when people say that, I, it just perplexes me because I don't want to be in a job that I can't do. And that's I guess I wanted to hear that I hadn't been hired just because I was black. So, so
1: going into that meeting with David, you had really expected you'd wanted to hear and you frankly expected to hear him say, no, of course not. Of course, I didn't hire you because you were black.
2: Right. That's Correct. I I expected him to say, absolutely not. I did not hire you because you were black. And then how did that meeting actually go?
3: Well, you, you essentially asked me, why was I hired? Because you were hearing all kinds of things in the newsroom, including white males were an endangered species and that you were hired because you were black.
1: That, for the record, is David Weiss, Michelle's former editor and, probably worth mentioning, a white male. Michelle called him up to hear his memories of this conversation from decades ago, which had gone differently from
2: how she expected. He said, yes, I heard you because you're black. He could see on my face that. You know, my my body, you know, you sort of have this out of body experience and you could see him looking at me thinking, oh, no. Also, I can't believe that he said that. He, he just straight up said like, yeah, I did hire you because you were black. Yes, right away. I I, it's, I remember it like it was yesterday and I just slumped in my body. And he said, no, come into my office and sit down. And I remember sitting on the couch and he, he pulled his chair over and sat in front of me. Now, in my head, I'm just going through all kinds of conversations and thinking, oh my gosh, they are right. Oh my gosh. So I didn't hear, I I wasn't paying attention. And then I tuned into what he was
3: saying. Uh, It was important for me to make absolutely clear to you that being black was a factor in my hiring you for certain because we lacked enough diversity. But I also said to you, That being a woman was important and being young was important.
2: And I hired you because you're a woman. And I hired you because you come from a low-income background. And I hired you because you're getting a master's degree and because you have an expertise in bankruptcy. And he just went down this long list
3: of why he hired me. And that you were a good reporter who could be great and had enormous potential. I saw the potential that you had.
2: And he finally said, listen, it was the totality of who you were that made you a great hire for us. And I just, I might, I started crying even more because I was like, yes, yes, I deserve to be here. It was just the most encouraging conversation. It was the most uplifting And I, my chest, you know, rose up and I thought, you know what? I am never going to let someone make me doubt that I belong at the Washington Post. I asked him, why did he say yes right away? Because oftentimes when managers are focused on making sure they have a diverse staff, they sometimes run away from the fact that they did include in their decision that the person was a minority. They know they did, but they don't want to actually say it because they feel like that may confirm people's viewpoints that you only was hired because you're Black. Why didn't you run away from that? I guess is what I'm saying. Because particularly managers, white managers don't want to be seen as playing some sort of favoritism and you're hiring someone just because of the color of their skin to fill a sort of diversity quota. But you were so direct in, in that answer. Why do you think that is?
3: I think I was directing that answer because it was, it was a factor in my hiring you. And I didn't think twice about that. I didn't feel there was any strong affirmative action program at the Washington Post. And so in a way, I felt that, that uh, you know, I was, doing, I was doing the paper a favor, if you will by hiring you. And I also I also didn't run away from that because I was proud of the fact that I hired you and you were black. I think I think that was very, very important to me at the time. And it and instead of feeling defensive, I was delighted.
2: He didn't want to run away from my blackness. cultural history that I have, being raised a certain way, being raised in the neighborhood that I was raised by, you know, a low-income grandmother. He said all of that is important and it's not secondary. And that's what was so brilliant by the fact that he started with, yes, I hired you because you were Black. Hmm. You know, I, I think that
1: conversation really speaks to this tension that I think A lot of people of color feel that I feel in trying to think about who we are and how our identity plays a role in who we've become and and the work that we do, because there is this kind of gap or, or tension where it's like, on the one hand... You don't want to be the person who's hired because you're a black. You don't want to be the person who's considered a diversity hire or filling some kind of quota or or chosen for reasons beyond just your uh, professional achievements. But at the same time, I think that You know, when we talk to each other, that it's clear that who we are, where we come from, our experiences in life, the lens through which we view the world, that that is fundamental to how all of us do our job. And that it does make a difference if you are a person of color, if you're a woman, if you come from a low-income background, in terms of how you can understand the forces that are at play in, in the country and in the world. And that is an asset, that it, it changes how you're able to communicate with people. It changes the ideas that you come up with. It changes the people that you talk to and the way that you think about problems and solutions and coverage and what needs to be covered. And so it, it's funny that it, it feels like on the one hand, you're trying to not acknowledge that. And certainly my vibe from people who hire you is that they don't want to acknowledge
2: that. But at the same time, it feels like, of course, that plays a role because it should play a role. I think the key word you said was asset. And I think that's what David was saying. And I love how you explained it, because we can no longer run away from our blackness, our being a woman, our sexual orientation, because it informs us in a way that helps our coverage. For example, when the virus hit and Congress passed the CARES Act, which included the stimulus payments. So a lot of papers were covering the policy part of that, why it was there, how it would help the economy. And I was talking to my editor and I said, you know... People are already sending me emails and talking to me. They haven't gotten their payment, that not know why. And then the IRS was shut down, obviously, like many companies um, to prevent the spread of the virus. So people couldn't get answers. And I, so I said, you know, I wanna cover, I wanna really talk, try to get answers for people. But it was because of my economic background that I knew that that was a story that needed to be told. How do you get that stimulus payment? What happens if you don't get it? Who's not getting it? And getting answers from the IRS, and it was my economic background and my blackness that made me hone in on that. Mm. And I, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be immodest, but I think myself and the Washington Post have been a leader on the coverage of the glitches that happened with the stimulus payments, mm-hmm. and people could turn to our coverage to figure out why they didn't get a stimulus payment. And then we were one of the first to report that the IRS hadn't sent payments to parents of disabled children or parents who were disabled, people who were receiving um, Social Security disability or veterans benefits. And it was my blackness and the fact that I came from a low income background that made me realize, hey, the policy matters. But the fact of the matter is people want to know where is my money and why haven't I not gotten it?
1: I want to go back to what you were saying about your fear of being considered like an affirmative action hire, because I think that is a thing that so many of us struggle with, even thinking for me back to when I got into college that I felt and heard from other kids in high school that like the reason that I got into the college that I got into was because I'm black. Um, I, I think that is a thought that has crossed my mind with every single job that I have ever gotten, including this one. And I wonder what you think, like, how do you deal with that? How do you get past that or even embrace that? And not kind of drive yourself crazy with this lingering feeling of self-doubt of maybe the only reason that I'm here is because people looked at me and said, well, you know, it'll be good for us to have a person of color, a woman of color in this position. So that's why we chose you.
2: You know, I heard that when I went to college as well. I went to the Marquis State College, even though it was a state college. So some people look down on it because it's not an Ivy. But, you know, University of Maryland is a great, you know, school and it's very you know, hard to get into. It has a great journalism program. That's exactly right. And so I got that when I was at Maryland. People look at you and they, oh, they just let her come in because she's black. And you hear these whispers and sometimes people say it right to you, face. Oh, you know, you've got it made because you were black. I'm like, well, you got it made because you were rich or you got it made because you were an athlete. I mean, I think that's how I sometimes look at it, that there are there are affirmative actions for all kinds of things. Your parents went to the school. Like I said, you're an athlete. You you have money. You came from a certain neighborhood, even the SAT scores, because that is not a measure always of how well you can do in college, because we know some kids just don't test well. And the SAT is notoriously not geared towards African-American students because we don't score well, but that does not necessarily mean that we can't do well in college. I had a, you know, I would say mediocre SAT scores, but I was at the top of my class when I graduated from the University of Maryland. So what do I say to myself? I just remember what David said to me at that time. And when I have my doubts and I still do, if you can believe it or not, all these years at the post, I still have doubt, but I just erase those doubts by saying I am good at what I do. And I wouldn't have had this long career at the post if I couldn't pull my weight. And you can think that if you want to, but I deserve to be here just like everybody else. So if it continues to be the case that this idea
1: of affirmative action still has this tinge of unfairness or, you know, makes us feel weird, makes white people feel weird, what do you think is the answer to that? Or what do you think, how do you think people's thinking needs to change on that? And part of me wonders if part of the solution is having more conversations like the one that you had with David Weiss. Conversations that aren't just about, you know, we don't see race or, of course, who you are didn't play a role in our hiring decision, but more honest conversations about how do we think who you are, including your race, including your gender, informs the work that you do, but also conversations about how being white being a man, being upper income, how those things also affect the work that that other people do.
2: I think we need more uh, managers like Vice who understand the importance of diversity at a deeper level and don't feel they have to apologize for it or run away from it or clarify it. And it happens at the upper levels. Right. And when you hire more managers like that, hopefully the people under them will understand that as well. But we do need to have these conversations. And when things are said, the managers have to put them down. And when I say that, when I was talking to David Vice, we talked about one reporter who said to me and to others, when the Post was hiring more Blacks that, you know, uh, white men are going to be an endangered species in the newsroom. And a lot of times that comment went unchallenged. And we have to challenge that comment. What? What? Why are you saying that? We have to be able to have these real conversations without hard feelings, how that makes folks feel when you say things like that. Because really what you're saying is they're taking jobs away from white people. And that it's is also
1: how counter it is to reality when you look around at newsrooms, businesses in general, or white collar offices. Like there is no shortage
2: of white men at these places. <laughs> like they are not an endangered species. They most certainly are not, and in the near future, do not seem to be that way. <laughs> but this is this is a very hard topic because it runs so deep in our country, and we are still not post racial. And we need to accept that fact and embrace it because there are some people who think we are, and we most certainly are not.
1: Michelle Singletary is a personal finance columnist for The Post. You can find a link to the first column in her new series, Sincerely Michelle, at postreports.com. And now, one more thing. Believe it or not, in several states, today is the first day of voting in the presidential election. We've been asking you to send us your questions about how the election is going to work this year. And we got lots of questions about mail-in ballots and the signatures on those ballots, including this question. My name is Lillian, and I live in Berkeley, California. I'm wondering, what signatures are states going to use to verify the signatures on the mail-in ballots? If it's the original voter registration card from when I was 18, I'm pretty sure my signature is different now. And I have friends registering online for the first time, and that requires no signature. California says they have a system in place so you can contest a rejected signature. But I'm just so worried, especially more so in other states, that so many ballots are not going to be counted or lost in the shuffle this way. Because mail-in voting varies a lot from state to state, our producer, Lena Mohamed, reached out to the office of the California Secretary of State to get an answer about their process.
0: My name is Sam Mahood, press secretary for the California Secretary of State's office. So in California, the signature that is provided on a voter's vote by mail ballot envelope is compared against the signatures that are on file with their voter registration. And that includes not just the first signature they registered with, but the signatures they provided in subsequent updates to their registration. Now, for most people, their signature is going to be the one that they provided to the DMV of your state ID or your driver's license. With the increasing popularity of registering to vote online or those who register through the DMV themselves, that's where most signatures are coming from now for voter registration records. So we recommend checking the back of your state ID or your driver's license. So if,
2: for example, my signature on my ballot does not match uh, the signature that you guys have on file or like rather really election officials have on file, what,
0: what happens then? If a voter's signature on their vote-by-mail ballot envelope does not match what is on file, it gets flagged by the elections official, and they will attempt to reach out to the voter to give the voter an opportunity to provide an updated signature so that way their ballot can be counted, and then that signature will be added to their voter registration record.
2: So, like, is it a software that the state of California is using that matches signatures or is it like how how is the state verifying those?
0: So it might vary a little bit county to county depending on the size, but a lot of counties will use software to do the initial match between the signature on the vote by mail ballot envelope and then what's on the voter registration record. If any signatures are flagged as a possible mismatch then there will be human review of it by the county elections official, um, comparing uh, what's on the envelope to what's on the voter registration record. I know when I spoke to Sacramento County Elections, they are getting forensic training for any staff that is going to be doing the human review of possible mismatch signatures. What would you say to like a California voter who is worried about going to vote in person, but also is still
2: a little bit worried that their mail-in ballot is, is not going to count? What are the steps that they can
3: do now to help make sure that their ballot is getting counted?
0: The number one piece of advice I have for Californians is to sign up for Where's My Ballot. That's at wheresmyballot.sos.ca.gov. That way, you can get automatic tracking every step of the way. If you're a vote by mail ballots, so you'll know when it's on the way to you, when it's arrived to your county elections official, uh, if it's been counted, and if it hasn't been counted, if there's been an issue. So that way, you can have peace of mind that you know where your ballot is every step of the way. And also, it's important to remember, vote by mail is a process that's been around for many, many years. The overwhelming majority of vote by mail ballots are counted and there's no issues with it. It's a safe process, secure, and it's really important that people take advantage of it during the pandemic.
1: Thank you, Lillian, for the great question. If you have a question about voting this year, there is a great resource on The Washington Post website called How to Vote. You can find specific information for your state, the deadlines, and how to vote by mail or in person. We'll add a link in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Sfernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.
0: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses.